This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of our monthly podcast, Radar by Nextworks. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And today I have here with me Pascal Coppens, our China expert, and Julie Vens de Vos, who is our CEO of Nextworks. Hey, Pascal and Julie. Morning, Stephen. Hi. I am still super, super excited after our Web3 tour that we had uh, last week. Uh, Julie, we spent two days in London together with 50 entrepreneurs, 50 business people to discover the ins and outs of Web3 and the metaverse. And I'm, I'm still really excited about it because I, I had the chance to talk with some of the people who went with us on this trip. And, you know, all those people, their minds were like exploding after hearing talk after talk about blockchain and NFTs and virtual worlds. But more importantly, most people had the feeling that they finally understood what it was about. And I think we all shared the same feeling. We all had the feeling that we were back in the year 2000 or the year 2001 when the internet just came out. Uh, and uh, I remember the days I worked at Insights Consulting back then, and I had to do research about the internet and how many people were using it. And then we had to convince companies that the internet was really important. Uh, but most people didn't understand its value. Most people were like, okay, that's for tech people. This is nothing for me. And now you have the exact same thing with, with blockchain, same thing with cryptocurrencies. And there are many similarities. The technology then was a little was robust, but a little bit shaky. Uh, today, the same goes for, for the metaverse, for VR, AR, same goes for blockchain. But you see that the amount of users is going up. People are seeing the possibilities. You see that the amount of applications are increasing. So even though that we're now in what they call a crypto winter after the big crash that we had uh, in the value of NFTs and, and cryptocurrencies, more and more people are getting interested into all these technologies and more and more money is flowing into the direction of Web3 and the metaverse. So this is probably the time when we will look back in 2030 that we will look back at and say, this is when it really, really took off. So in our opinion, it's really crucial to, to understand what's, what's going on. I learned a lot during the tour myself. Like I was really impressed, Chile. I don't know what your opinion was by, by Ira, Ira Ariela Key, a Ukrainian entrepreneur, a fantastic lady um, that explained everything to us in a fantastic way. She owns a company called Zamna. And um, her opinion, I think, is, is very simple, but, but it's the essence what Web3 is about. She told us that today there are too many solutions that are looking for a problem. There are too many people who think the technology is some sort of a religion and they don't look at the customer value. And, you know, I really enjoyed her opinion about that. And I think the product that she has with Zamna, the philosophy that she has, is very simple, but it brings value to the customer. Uh, Pascal, just to introduce you to the story of, of Zamna, when you go to the airport and you take a flight, what is the process that you always have to go to before you get on the plane? Well, before you get on the plane, you have to uh, get your ticket and then you have to board and, and basically, no, you have to go through check-in and uh, yeah. go through security gates and that takes uh, endless time. Endless time and you have to show your passport every single time, you have to show your COVID stuff every single time. So you give all that information to the airline, then you get on the plane and what does the airline do with that information? Nothing. 
They just throw the data back into the bin because it's too complex for them with all kinds of regulations to keep that data there so that next time you could just vroom, go through the gates without you know, re-entering all that information. And this is exactly what Zamna is solving. They put all that personal information on the blockchain so you can use that data over and over again, identify yourself in a very convenient way so you save out the time of you know, the administrational process every single time. And I, I thought this was such a simple application of the blockchain, but with instant value for the customer. It's basically removing the friction of that administrational process. And it, it's those kind of tools that we're going to need, those kind of use cases that we're going to need to make sure that it really, really takes off. So I thought that was a, a really interesting part. Question on that, maybe, Stephen, because uh, I love how you mention or, or pinpoint on, on simplicity. And I think if you if we look at the last five years or 10 years even, uh, it was all about, and, and definitely your story in terms of customer experience as well, about the interfaces that should be smooth and convenient and easy. Uh, I think it was Feo Sickinger as well uh, in London who, who kind of pointed that out as one of the barriers still. Like, yes, numbers of users are increasing, but still it's pretty complicated if you don't know your way around. If you just want to get there, it's not straightforward yet. Um, is there anything that you envision for the next few years? What is going to happen in the interface of Web3? What would you I, bet I, on? Yeah, well, I, I think it's it's the pain point at this time. It's too complex. It's too abstract. It's very difficult to understand because most people who are explaining blockchain to others do it from a technology point of view. If I would explain that to my parents, for instance, who are in their early 70s, they don't have a clue what I'm talking about. So we need to simplify the way that we talk about it. We need to simplify the interfaces. I would bet on the metaverse, actually, Julie, to let blockchain really take off. I was thinking about it just before we recorded this podcast. If you look back to the internet, I mean, the internet started to grow around 2000, then we had the dot-com crisis. But it really took off when we had mobile devices that the internet was in our pocket and very easy to use in, in the most convenient way ever. That's when it really took off. And that's when people like my parents started to use the internet. I think we're going to see the same thing now with Web3. There are going to be all kinds of very complex technical things happening with blockchain. But truth is, most people will not understand it unless you are part of a virtual world. If you are part of a virtual world, there's a big chance that you will buy virtual assets. There's a big chance that you will use virtual money to do things there. And some people probably think, yeah, but that's youngsters that play games and they buy you know, new skins in Fortnite and those kind of things. I think that's one side of the story. I always give the example of events, like Coldplay is coming to Belgium this year. I have tickets for Coldplay. I'm, I'm very excited about that. But we needed to organize ourselves in an enormous way to get tickets. I mean, we were like five families with probably 20 computers <laughs> figuring out how we would do it. I, I had more information about that concert of Coldplay than that Putin has about the war in Ukraine. I think that's the kind of preparations that you need to get tickets for Coldplay. But but we succeeded. Huh? So that's, that's the good news. Congrats. <laughs> there are 200,000 tickets that were sold, and there were 1.2 million people who wanted to get tickets. What if you create a virtual Coldplay world in the Koning Baudouin Stadium, where the concert will happen, and you sell 1 million additional tickets, not for 100 euros per ticket, but maybe for 20, maybe, maybe 15, I don't know, and you make it a really cool experience, then people will have to spend money to get there. Coldplay will make maybe 10 or 15 or 20 million more in that virtual world. 
And then as an adult, you go to that concert and maybe you will buy a Coldplay t-shirt for your avatar and you will spend money there. So I think that those kind of metaverse applications will be easier to understand for the mass market. It will be more attractive for the mass market. And once you're in the virtual world, you will spend money. And before you know it, you're part of Web3, but we will just not call it Web3 anymore. We will call it, I bought fashion for my avatar and no one will say, oh, you used the blockchain. It's like, <laughs> we don't say we used this kind of internet technology. We just bought something. And I think that's the acceleration that we need. And that's where Web3 and Metaverse can really reinforce each other. What do you think after those two days in London? I agree on the, be it, I think I, I would disagree on the metaverse. I think one of the questions is also indeed, um, you have metaverses, <laughs> I would say, right. and you just have different virtual worlds, which will complement our current world, as you just gave the Coldplay example. And I think on the more boring end uh, or functional end, there, there are applications too. I mean, if you look into training, what it could do to just train somebody in a certain skill or something that they just uh, handling a behavior that somebody should adopt. I'm thinking safety measures, uh, for example. Those are things that if you do that in virtual reality, in virtual worlds, the adoption of that is just way higher than you just read a book. Mm -hmm. We recently had an inspiration program as well here in the Netherlands where we uh, invited Numina. I think we talked about that earlier, but how they are designing in VR is just a totally different ball game when you do that in a virtual world. So I think there are many applications to think of. And as you mentioned, applications are rising. So we'll, we'll have to see how, how do we also find our way in the multitude of worlds that are uh, being created and how does that resonate back to the real world? Um, I mean, there's a generational thing here. I think in London, we were on the older end, <laughs> I would say, more experienced, I will say. <laughs> But I think it would have been fascinating to have people or kids like 15, 25 year olds in that same discussion as well, because I think it's a slide we've seen yesterday as well, like the number one go-to entertainment place for the different generations, for the boomers, it's okay, we watch TV show in the evening and, and we, we tune up the TV. Uh, but for youngsters, that's just all about play. Yeah, They just like that way more. And if the options to play, if the spaces to play increase and they get better and better and better, it's just a place where they will be. Uh, and the, the question is, how will the world adapt to that? So I think that's really yeah. fascinating to see how those worlds are... Uh, complimentary. I agree. You know, one of the visits that, that I found really interesting was the visit to Christie's, the big auction house that we went to that actually started more than 200 years ago in London. They ignited the whole NFT hype, right? When people, his first 5,000 days of the internet were sold, it was at Christie's. A lot of the boring apes are being sold at Christie's. We actually saw a guy there who bought a board ape, I think he paid $1.2 million for it. And we saw a picture of it and we, we asked him, why is this one so expensive? And you know what he said, Pascal? <laughs> There, I learned a lot about board apes and why they are more expensive than others. <laughs> and it's yep. very clear, I can teach you which one you can buy. The one that he bought for 1.2 or 1.3, I don't remember, had lasers coming from its eyes and it was smoking a joint. Okay. There you go. There you go. That's everything you need to know. If you want to have an expensive okay. ape, go for the lasers and go for the joint and preferably the combination of the two. Uh, that's where the lot. It was fascinating. We saw a lot of people are laughing with NFTs and, and digital art, but we saw some really beautiful things that were created in a digital world that are worth a lot. And basically that was the message that we heard. You need to go for real art by real artist, and then it's going to be as valuable as real art, but then just in a digital way. Or you need to have real value. There needs to be a smart contract 
underneath it that brings a lot of value. I don't know if you guys have been following it this week, but there was the VCon conference in the US organized by Gary Vaynerchuk, linked back to his NFTs. So he sold a bunch of NFTs earlier this year. A lot of money was paid for that. And a lot of people were like, I mean, they're just silly drawings by Gary Vaynerchuk. And they minimized it. You get access to a conference. But if you look at the conference that he organized, I mean, it was with Pharrell, it was with Snoop Dogg, it was with all these A-star celebrities coming to the show for three or four days in a row, getting top-notch content with 10,000 people who were part of that community. If you saw the footage, it was amazing. And that is real unique value that you can only get if you are the owner of an NFT of Vicon, of Gary Vaynerchuk, his collection. So bringing real value or real art, I think, is the only way forward. And, and because of that, you know, 99% of the cases and the NFT examples become a total failure and lose value with the flagship example, of course, of the tweet of Jack Dorsey that is now worth peanuts and was once sold for $2.8 million. And maybe... The most fun thing that we've seen, Julie, you know what I'm going to talk about right now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we had yeah. we had different virtual worlds. You already mentioned it. We saw like Cosmos X, which is a new virtual world that will be launched pretty soon. It's like a big shopping mall entertainment place that they built and they use a smart strategy. They're going to attract, what was it, 10,000 influencers with more than 1 million followers. And they will give those influencers the opportunity to start their own business in that virtual world. So they can open up a virtual boutique, virtual fashion store. They can host events in Cosmos X and they can make money and their followers can be part of that community. So I thought that was a smart strategy to create traffic and to create this new economy on that platform. But the best new virtual world that we've seen, it's going to be launched in a few days. Maybe it's already launched when this podcast is being published, is the Petaverse, a metaverse for pets. And I mean, Pascal, we've seen we've seen videos. It Pascal was, is clearly we were all impressed. Like, yeah, <laughs> when I we hear pets, like, I think about something else. It's it's like no, no, no. <laughs> it's really cats and dogs. Cats and okay. dogs in okay. the metaverse. It's a dream coming true for me personally because my children have been nagging for a dog for years now. We're always pushing them back. Now my problem is completely solved because I'm going to send them to the Petaverse. They can choose their own puppy or multiple puppies. They can choose a cat. And then that cat can virtually walk around in our house and they can play with it. It's like the Tamagotchi 2.0. And I thought it was a brilliant idea. Why didn't we come up with that? If you have something with pets, I'm sure it's a gold mine that they have there. So that was that was really cool, Julie. Yeah, it was cool, but <laughs> besides there were mixed feelings, but it was cool. Uh, yeah. I think I'm when, in the excitement I, part. Yeah, that's just, <laughs> just nuancing things a bit, but uh, no, no, uh, go with the enthusiasm, I would say. But I think what's smart on that, it's um, it's on a family level. I mean, if, if your kids indeed become a huge fan of their dog or their cat, or it brings a family together and it might be a, a boundary spanner, let's say, for younger people who invite their parents to experience yeah, the Petaverse together, and maybe that's an entry point to Metaverse worlds. I don't know. Yeah, so absolutely. it might be a smart entry point. I'm going to try it out. I want to have my, my virtual dog on my on my shoulder here. Yeah. The good thing about that is that uh, your dog or cat won't get overweight and you don't have to go to the vet and, and spend uh, maybe hundreds of dollars to uh, actually yeah. make it all happen because you can just 
give candy without overweight. So I think this is interesting. <laughs> That's a good concept. Huh? That's a good concept. <laughs> yeah, but be careful eh? because a lot of these uh, applications are, um, you have the shoe example, is it, mm-hmm. is it Steppen? Where, I mean, your shoes also got worn out and then you have to buy new ones if you if you have okay. ex-Calamus. So, so I mean, maybe there's another mean... <laughs> business for veterinarians. <laughs> there is, in there the, is. In the metaverse. You know, and that, that brings me to my conclusion. There are a lot of opportunities, a lot of things will happen, but maybe in the short run, the biggest impact for businesses will be on the HR perspective. You know, in the US, they're suffering from the great resignation. I was listening to Gary Vaynerchuk this week on his conference, and he said there's the great resignation, but there's the never apply in the first place generation coming in. There are so many people that have so many options now. If you hear about the possibilities that the new creator economy brings, I mean, they can start with NFTs. They can become a vet in the petaverse. It sounds silly, but those kind of businesses will rise. You can become an event host. You can become a real estate agent in the metaverse. So this new phase of the internet brings so many options for people that I think a lot of young people will say, I don't want to work for a big bank or a big telco anymore. I want to have a relaxed, good life. I'm going to make some money that is just enough to have a normal, good life thanks to these new technologies. And and it's not so far off. It looks like this is something that, that happens somewhere far away from you. But during our tour, Julie, we had someone on board, one of our entrepreneurs, and he told me, he said, my brother, who's 28 or something, he quit his job. And he's now a professional NFT trader. And he does that like for two or three hours a day. And the rest of the time, he's just doing his hobbies, relaxing, doing the things that he wants to do with his life. And he's making enough money with the two-hour trading to have a normal, decent life. And he doesn't have to listen to a boss. There's no you know, negative energy that a corporate environment sometimes brings or brought to him. So this is going to be interesting. Eh? If all these people are a part of that group, imagine that only 10% or 15% of the potential talent chooses one of these new options. I mean, the war for talent is going to be something totally else then. Eh? And Julia, I know that you have a strong opinion about that as well. Yeah, as always. Uh, but you're right. I think uh, the example, it's not only people of 28. I, I was having lunch with somebody in the FMCG industry and um, they, they said a similar example. Like we, we had a great operator, talented, I mean, 40 plus, and he just quit the job. I made Bitcoin. I'm going to go on a world trip. And I like those types of examples are, are coming up. But it's like for companies it's like what? You're just going to leave your job and do that? And I think those are the maybe anecdotal examples that show that something is coming. But I think my favorite quote of the full London trip was the guy from Preloaded who said, a VR literate generation is coming. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one sentence that companies really should take with them. We hear stories that sometimes people can't onboard in companies because they don't have a master degree and they want to hire them. But the system says, if you don't have a master degree, you cannot onboard in this company. Well, those types of examples are way off of a VR literate generation that is coming. So I think um, if we see the war for talent, if we see how corporates today are struggling to find people. We had two interns saying goodbye to Nextwork yesterday. And, and uh, I, was, I was also asking, like, where are you going to work? And like the last possible example or company that they mentioned was a corporate. It was like, no, why would I work in a corporate? And it struck me. It was like, wow, in, in, back in the days, that was one of the first options. So those signals, I think, show that companies really should 
make sure that they are aware that this is another generation that is used to other experiences, to other interfaces, and one of those interfaces will be these virtual worlds. And how are you going to organize work related to those worlds? How are you going to make sure that the work that they do is exciting enough for them, that they don't want to go for the alternatives that you mentioned, that they don't want to go for the new alternatives that are shaping in the VR world? So I think that's a huge challenge or opportunity as well, I think, for a lot of companies. If, you, if you're aware of that and you start thinking about that, that might also be um, yeah, a USP for your company to attract talent. I think companies underestimate the B2B possibilities of metaverse. And we're talking about gaming and all those possibilities. But if you look at Teams, for instance, how Microsoft is planning out to move forward, in six months, we're going to have avatars that we can use instead of our real videos. And then the next phase is doing that in 3D. And then you're in a cartoon world. And, you know, I saw a message in our WhatsApp group of our tour of Wonderman Thompson. Mm-hmm. They created a B2B metaverse to invite new talents and to tour them around in the metaverse and do first interviews or do first conversations in the metaverse. It's those kind of things that will be important to, to experiment with. Absolutely. Uh, just adding examples to the mix, I think um, the other one was uh, how do you pay people? Because some of them might want to be starting to consider, I want to be paid in crypto or I want to be paid this way or in tokens or, I mean, imagine what that contract would look like. And um, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's going to be exciting for uh, certain departments and companies, that's for sure. Absolutely. Pascal, if you hear us speak about what we've seen in London, mm-hmm. do you see similarities in China or big differences that are totally different than the description that Julie and me just gave you? No, I see the same trend in China. And I mean, it's a too long story to, to get into that now. But definitely, I mean, the literacy rates, I'm 100% with that because there people need to be more literate on what's happening there. If you look at a completely different thing like live streaming, this is an example in China where you can really see that if you can't live stream as an employee, you just won't get a job anymore. And I think the same will happen in the whole meta world. Uh, it's just uh, we're not going through that live streaming environment as China is, but it's the same thing. And it's also the virtual world is also more natural because that online and offline world in China has been merging for a long time Mm -hmm. uh, with gaming and and with a lot of AR and stuff like that that's been ongoing. So I've seen it happening in China already for a few years. And definitely they're also on the same trend, the the Tencent, the Alibaba. So I see the exact same thing when it comes to NFTs. It's very clear all about collectibles because crypto isn't so nice in China, they don't really like that. So they go really about creating value. So it has to be about creation. It has to be about value. It has to be about something that's meaningful for the company, for the creator, for the society. And so, yes, I do see some of these business models that are coming that are really going very aligned with what you're just saying. So for me, this is just very similar. Just maybe one thing on the blockchain, not related to this meta virtual world completely, but which is really taking off in China is this whole cross-border trade. And that was because you were talking about the airplane example, boarding a plane. Well, cross-border trade is a big thing in China now where blockchain is being used exactly like you explained to speed up the whole customs. And today, instead of days, it's now minutes to do cross-border trade through Hainan primarily and many of these special economic zones. I already see this happening, but this has a lot to do also with 5G, it has to do with IoT, with AI, with all the things that basically make it more efficient and make it cheaper. And I think the word cheap or less expensive is, is something that I see in China as a priority to go into this 
metaverse. It's, it's just more efficient and cheaper. And, and just like you say with Gary Vee, you can just sell more tickets. So that's a, an economic benefit. On that, yesterday I had a meeting with a large Scandinavian company and uh, the guy was head of tax. But imagine, what is this going to be with all these virtual worlds? His issue was like, hey, I'm taxed in my own company and I have a dispute because they want the profits that I make in another European country. They want to tax that in my country. Oh my God, I, this is going to be fascinating in the next couple of years. So. <laughs> Their job's going to be really, really interesting. Absolutely. Before we jump to the next topic, just a small commercial message in between. If you also get excited about Metaverse and you want to you wanna learn more, we're going with Nextworks to Paris in November on a two-day trip to learn everything there is to know about the Metaverse and the opportunities that we see there. And we're going to talk with all the experts that we can find in Paris on that two-day trip. So if you want to join us, just send me or Julie or Pascal a message, talk to the Nextworks people, and we would be thrilled if you can join us to this trip in Paris in November. So far for the commercial messages, but let's talk about some commercial activities. Pascal, tell us everything there is to know about Chinese Valentine and the crazy endless shopping festivals that are popping up everywhere. Yeah, no, it's very interesting to see um, the whole e-commerce booming in China for many, many years. And one of the reasons has to do with the shopping festivals. As you said, I mean, there's an endless number of shopping festivals in China. And we know, of course, the Singles Day, uh, November 11th, from Alibaba. That's the most well-known one, which uh, last year they sold for $74 billion dollars in just one shopping festival, like the GDP of certain countries in the world. And, and so this is an amazing amount. But, but China has a lot of shopping festivals. And the interesting thing is that this is a relationship family thing, meaning that even on Singles Day, most people will buy for the whole family because the discounts are so much very often that they will buy for like six months of products. But every single month, pretty much, there's a shopping festival. I mean, they have the same festivals as we have to start with, like New Year. They also have Chinese New Year, of course. There's Christmas. There's normal Valentine's Day. There's Mother's Day. There's Women's Day. There's uh, Children's Day. But there's a lot of festivals that are also specifically linked to a specific date that is linked to a specific company. And this could be an idea also for the West uh, for many places. But for example, 418, they're all numbers in China. They love numbers. But 418 is the Suning Festival. And Suning is actually the largest online retailer for home appliances. They also have one on 818. Chinese love the number eight. I don't know if you know that, but eight means yeah. lucky. In Chinese, you remember the 2008 Olympic uh, Games in Beijing? Well, that was on the 8th of August in 2008, and it was introduced with 888 drummers uh, to actually <laughs> open the, the festival. So eight is an important number, just yeah. remember that. And 618 is on the 18th of June, and that's from JD. JD.com, okay. the Amazon of, of China. Also, all these companies always get founded on an eight date, 18th or 18. <laughs> Eight or the 28, but it's, there has to be an eight. You, you want to get founded on the eight and probably at eight in the a.m. in the morning or 8 p.m. in the evening. So that's the day you, you start. Of course, there's Black Friday in the West. And Chinese thought, well, if they have Black Friday in the West, well, we'll have Red Friday in the East. And so there's a festival called Red Friday on the 25th of November. And so you see every month there's this pretty much a festival. Are there, are there any days without a shopping festival? Oh, well, not many, because usually these festivals is on one day. 
But then they said, well, we're going to have pre-sales. And so they started like a week in advance, and now it's like two weeks in advance. So these festivals go one into the other because there's like pre-sales of the festival of that one day. And so, yes, there's not too many days left in the year anymore for festivals in China. Okay. Uh, but the one I wanted to talk to you about, it's 520. And 520 in Chinese, uh, sounds a little bit like Ni. I mean, it's far-fetched, but that's how the Chinese feel it. And Ni means I love you. And so this is the Chinese Valentine. So they have the Western Valentine on the 14th of February, just like we have. And then on the 20th of May, that was just now, there's actually the Chinese Valentine. They call it the Chinese Internet Valentine Day because it's mainly aimed at young people and it's mainly aimed at sharing everything that you want to share as love with the people that you love. And this Love Expression Day is, is pretty important. Talking about pets, just you were talking about pets. This is the moment where actually the young generation is spending as much on pets as on flowers for Valentine. But do you know this, what the city of love is in China? Shanghai. Shanghai, no. Shanghai is a shopping mall of, of China. Okay. But uh, no, the city of love is called Chengdu. Chengdu is like 16, 17 million people. But unless we have a global pandemic, we don't hear about these cities and we don't know what they're, they're all about. So we now all know Wuhan, but Chengdu is the next city to know because it's a city of love. And it's the city of love because, I mean, you're, you know probably the pandas, the Chinese pandas. Well, they're coming mm -hmm. from Chengdu. It's a beautiful scenery. It's, it's also the place where the hot food comes from. And as every Chinese know, all the beautiful women are coming from Chengdu. But this is typically a city which is promoting itself on the, the 20th of May to really say like, okay, this is the moment that we need to push all the fashion and luxury and beauty and every product that the whole China has to actually give to our loved ones. And the interesting thing about 520 is also, and that's another anecdote I want to give because there's lots of symbols in China, is that Chengdu has become the city of, of love. But one of the other things about the 520 is that this is the moment where couples often decide to marry on. And so where we in the West, we say, okay, we're going to find the day for our marriage, uh, which is probably going to be a beautiful day outside. So we want to have it in, in spring or summer or some place where we think it's nice. Well, in China, it's like 520 is the moment to, to actually marry because it's love day. And so this is great moment and probably at 8 p.m. in the evening, so or 8 a.m. in the morning. And so what they do in China is they will have like hundreds or thousands of couples marrying together in one big place. Wow. And so they, they will all go to the, the city hall at the same time. It's like traffic jam to get there <laughs> uh, just because they, they all believe if they marry that moment, their life, I mean, they will stay together because that's that's a symbolic Moment. So there's a lot of symbolism in there, but the story is, is really about there's so many shopping festivals, but it, a lot has to do with relationships. A lot has to do with family and friends and, and how you give things to people. And so there's a real emotional concept to it. And that brings me to the fact that Chinese brands are using these festivals to have a cultural competition with Western brands because they believe that this shows the Chinese culture coming up. And so they will actually use these festivals to say, we understand the Chinese customer and the Chinese user better than, than the Western brands. 
Do you see uh, Western brands also trying to jump on that wagon? Like, oh. I could imagine Neuhaus is in, is in China, yeah. that they would have special, you know, Love Day celebrations or Valentine Day celebration packages that they sell. Do they try to jump on that wagon as well? Yeah, 100%. Specifically in cosmetics and, and all the, the more uh, emotional brands, uh, just like Neuhaus and so on. I mean, they will use these Valentine Days and they will use these days to actually promote their goods. But now they're going into that virtual world as well. And so we're going to have a virtual Chinese, probably a Valentine's Day very, very soon coming up, maybe next cool. year. Great story. The only question I still had was about the mass weddings, Pascal. Is that <laughs> yeah. then only in Chengdu or is that no, no, no. all, of, all over China. China? All, all over China. China. It's really funny because then you have all these photographers uh, taking pictures of 30, 50 couples all marrying at the same time. And yeah, Crazy. it's uh, hilarious. Yeah, fantastic. I hope that we were going to do a tour once in the week of May 20th, that we can do that as some sort of a cultural attraction yeah, sure. that we can go and take pictures. That would be really, really cool. Now, talking about uh, spending time together with friends and colleagues, yesterday I was at a big bank somewhere in Europe and we were talking about people coming back or not coming back to the office. And on average, they had about 30 to 40% of their teams in the office, even though everyone's invited to come. But the crazy thing is that all the people that are then sitting at their desk in the office, they're all doing online meetings with all the people mm -hmm. that are still at home. So they were like, why should we come here if all the others are at home? So it's, it's like becoming a negative trend that less and less people are coming because they're like, I'm not seeing people here anyway, so I might as well stay home. So for them, it's becoming a really, really big challenge to see how are we going to create engagement? How will we do this? You know, what is going to be the norm? And I know, Julie, this is a trend that you're following week after week. You shared your knowledge multiple times with us. What's the current status? What, what do you see that is happening with going back to the office right now? The battle is very real. I think the 30, 40%, it's sort of the average that is in the market in the US and London, uh, where I, things are like at 40% people back in the office in general. So I think that's a bit aligned, I would say. But then, indeed, the question is, these are likely the people who want to get back to the office. So what about the next <laughs> percentages? Um, I read a, an article where they called it the resistance army. <laughs> uh, so that might be another ball game to, to get the next ones in. And I stick to the question, like, is it really necessary, of course, to get everybody back in? I hear your point. Uh, it's not the idea of being in virtual meetings at work all the time. Then we, yeah, of course, you don't want to go back to work then. But um, there was a great article this month in Bloomberg about the um, going back to the office war, I would say, was the title. And it was all about the meaning of work. I mean, why do you want to be there not to be in virtual meetings? So it, again, is not about getting free food or a free concert of Coldplay and then getting back. It's about how do you make sure that being at work is really valuable enough. And I'm afraid the answer is just not black and white. It's not going back or not going back. It's how do we create a world where both worlds can work together. If we look at the prior conversation about virtual worlds, metaverses, we will have to deal with different places where people work. So the question is not how do we get everybody back in one place? The question is how do we get everybody aligned for a shared purpose, a shared value that everybody is excited about? And likely that's not the table and not the chairs that are next to that table. It's got to be more exciting than that. I loved how the Bloomberg article also pointed to um, to the numbers of restaurants visits, for example. They were at 90%. So it's not because people don't get back to work that they don't see each other to have lunch together or to do events together. 
yeah, to, to Pascal's point in China on, on, on the customer side, on building certain symbolic moments, certain rituals, certain relationship-driven moments, I think that's really something that companies should start thinking about as well. And now it remains a very functional discussion on we should have people back in so many days or so many days. And it remains a penguin game. You have companies like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs who say we have to have people back in the office and they do everything to make that work. And there's like the carrots, as I said, free food, free concert, exceptional things. And then you have the stick. If you don't come back to the office again, then you will have a, a decrease of your salary or something. Another term is the Zoom ceiling. Is it going to hurt your career if you're not coming back? But question is, will people care if they can have a career in, in different worlds as well? So not sure whether they will win the war as that. And on the other side, you have the opportunists. You have a company like Coinbase or Salesforce who are just not finding enough people to hire in general. So they just really hire remote to make sure that they at least have the numbers to fill in their vacancies. So it's fascinating to see how, how companies actually position themselves in that. And I think it's it's important for companies to think about the longer term and how do they want to remain relevant on the emotional, meaningful side for people. That is a different question. And it's not related to being at your desk. It's about who you are for people and why their work would be meaningful for them. So um, it remains a fascinating place. And the, the carrot and stick games are all over, I think. I'm not sure whether you guys see other examples at customers um, that confirm that. I see the issue and I fully agree the the question I had, and I don't know if we already have the answer, but are there examples of companies somewhere in the world where people are, let's say, fully remote or for a big part of their job remote, but that people still feel really connected and engaged with the employer? And what do they do to make that happen? I think it's too soon to tell. This is the time that companies are making the new strategy for that, of course. Um, I think to the first part, are there companies who are working remotely completely? I think absolutely. I, we, we know yeah, a lot of, of them who just say, just work wherever you want. I think the stories we need is how can we talk to the people who work there and hear from them why they love that brand, why they love that company so much to work for. But another thing, isn't a company going to be like brands in the future? You also don't love one brand. You, you love different brands. So you might be, as an employee, be somebody who works for different companies, like you like different brands. Mm -hmm. In general, there, there are lots of small examples to share, I think, but like more a holistic strategy. I think it will take a few years to see how that impacts retention, for example. Maybe a strange comparison, huh? but maybe companies have to look at the success rate of the big days of religion or soccer. Julie, we always like to use examples from soccer because you are connected with a soccer team or you are connected with the religion, but you don't work for them. But there is this ritual that you go to. People who are really into religion every week or some every day, but let's say every week or every two weeks, you go to the ritual to share your beliefs or you go to the soccer stadium and you're part of the ritual and the one game. Maybe companies can learn from that. What if you feel that connectivity and you don't come back for, it doesn't matter where you work, but you create the ritual to make sure that people feel connected to the mission. Every week, maybe you have this moment where you have this come together to create a common belief. I think this is something that companies don't do at this time. You come to work and the benefit is not big enough. It's no celebration of your beliefs. If a company has a beliefs, I think you need to celebrate it and bring people together for that common reason and experience that together. And then you go back and you do your job 
you know, wherever you want to do it. Maybe that could be an interesting case to see what can we learn from soccer teams? What can we learn from religion and use that in a remote working space? Yeah, I love that. And on the other side, it's not that new. I mean, rituals, uh, creating relationships, uh, creating a shared purpose. I mean, that's part of corporate culture and about Mm-hmm. Companies who have success since years. I mean, those are the companies who succeed. Um, the question is, how do you organize that in a world which is remote as well, fully remote or partly remote? I think that's the big challenge. How do you make sure that those connections still happen? How do you reach those people that are not feeling connected? And how do you know? Because if they're at the office, yep. of course, it's easier. But I think that's one of the big questions. And on that purpose uh, level, I think that is something that is definitely increasing in relevance uh, for people. People want to work for companies that have a purpose that goes beyond making just money. If that's the only goal of your company, I just want to make money, but you don't give back to society, you don't have a higher purpose, it just affects your talent rates. So make sure that you are here for a reason and that you have a license to operate that is bigger than just an economical one. I think one example there is Orstedt. It's a Danish company, and they were what we could say the blackest company that you can imagine. They sold oil and gas and I mean, like all the, the dirty energy stuff, and they decided this is not going to work in the future. So we're going to become the greenest renewable energy company in the world. And they're completely shifted to wind uh, energy right now. So imagine 7,000 people who just from one day to the other have to change business. <laughs> um, but the fact that they are so serious about that and also make sure that in anything that they do, that they take their responsibility there, that alone creates a connection with the people who work there. If you don't like that purpose, you don't work there, uh, be it remote or be it in the office. So mm-hmm. I think the question is just not the place where you work. It's just the meaning of your work. Um, And the communication behind it. I mean, why couldn't the CEO copy paste the the Zelensky style communication? Every day you take your phone and every day he has a motivational speech that is very well prepared, that is very motivational, that is on what is happening in the world where he's trying to influence others. I mean, he does that every day. And it's not just taking his phone and saying something. It is well thought of. And every day it supports and builds on the story. And I'm sure everyone in Ukraine is watching that. Can you create that kind of communication style as well, that every day you talk about your purpose and not during this once a year annual employee conference? It's it's a continuous flow. I just believe that, I mean, because when you're talking about Zelensky, I think the one thing is also the struggle that is happening. And I think... uh, that brings me to the relationship. And, and so it's maybe a long jump to Huawei, but uh, I just want to show that when companies believe that they're under attack and the relationship is very strong, actually, that also creates a purpose. The purpose is actually surviving. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I see in China happening a lot within the relationship culture is that it's much more about personal and business is, is intertwined because you feel you have to stick together in order to survive in that future. I think now we're all having to think about that survival of our future, of every company, every organization uh, from now on. But we aren't used to do that. Well, in many places like China, which I've experienced, it's more natural because they had this competitive environment, which was, was cutthroat. And so today it's very different. But I do believe that this relationship And so it's not so much in China, for example, uh, working for a company than working for a boss. It's more about who is your boss, who's your employer, who's the person that really is going to help me 
with my future, with my purpose, with, with, with what I want in life, if he gets it, then I want to do a lot for that boss and that, and that boss will do a lot for me. I mean, it's one side, like you said, I mean, the soccer and religion and, and the bigger purpose and, and having some rituals to, to work towards, but also to have the glue together of people because they actually like each other and they like to work with each other. That's something that we can learn something from China, regardless of, of what we think about this, uh, the organizations. Because in the leadership of China, it's all about the family. I'm a big believer in, in both the purpose, as well as everybody has to stick together more as a family. And so the work-life balance maybe should be different than say, oh, I do have enough personal time opposed to my work. But actually, I don't see that much difference anymore between work and personal life because it's all natural to me. And, and so I think that's maybe the direction that some companies should be going to. Yeah, just to add on that, I think it's just another example. A couple of years ago, we were on a trip with a healthcare company about leadership. And there was a guy who said, hey, actually, I'm just a storyteller. I'm an entertainer. Because we went to Google as well. And how they did that is with the Friday talks, the TGF Friday. I mean, that was a global virtual thing as well. The teams in Europe, in Asia also watched those sessions. And it was a great ritual to actually get everybody together and Those rituals, those symbols, those routines really help to make sure that everybody stayed on the same pace. And I think those types of things have just enormously increased in relevance and in importance in a world that is so remote. Mm -hmm. It's just something that companies are not used to yet. But on the strategic part, we're seeing the same things. Um, we're doing a lot of strategic work for companies where they're, on the one hand, are thinking, okay, where is this company going? What should our purpose be, as you mentioned? But on the other hand, how do we create those relationships internally? How do we make sure that everybody is engaged? Because both of them are speeding up. Strategies are changing faster, so also communication has to be way much faster. Take the example of Zelensky. You cannot wait a year to just give an update on the war, you know. Uh, it's just a daily thing. And so the fact that that pace is so rapidly increasing is just a very, very big challenge for a lot of companies of, of a certain size as well. So uh, I think the video idea is a, is a great one, and I think we should just start to get creative with those types of rituals. Pascal, I, I just wanted to ask you a question about this topic because Julie talked a lot about great resignation, uh, you know, war for talent exploding, very difficult for companies in the West to find people. Every company is complaining about it. I, I read this article about China and it said there's this record high number of college graduates that are having a challenge to find work. Yes. Is, is this talent thing a Western problem? And is that then completely opposite in China? How's that situation? Yeah, so in China, there's uh, a lot of people, uh, just graduates, that um, have a real hard time to find jobs right now. I mean, there's 11 million people graduating from university every year. That's a lot of new jobs that need to be created every single year. In the boom of China, that was easy. I mean, everybody joined Tencent and Alibaba and all the big companies. But uh, right now, many of these tech companies are actually downsizing. Many of these uh, tech companies, Tencent, Alibaba... JD, a lot of them are, are laying off people right now. A lot has to do with uh, the tech regulation and crackdowns and lockdowns. And of course, the whole world that has changed a little bit. I mean, you see that a little bit everywhere. And so it's hard for them to find a new job. And so the unemployment rate has been uh, through the roof uh, the past uh, year. On the whole, China, it's about 5.5%, which is still acceptable. Although for a communist country, it should be at zero. But for the young people, younger than 24 years old, we're talking about 18 to 
to 19% of the graduates that don't find a job in wow. the first years. So that is a huge amount of people that actually are jobless. And so China's really concerned about that. And, and one of the reasons is that Chinese, and this is typically for Chinese companies, they, they don't like to train just graduates. Why? Because if you train people, they will get trained. And then two years later, they will go to another company and use that to get more money. And so a lot of companies in the past have said, yeah, we're training for our competitors. And so they don't like to have just graduates because that is actually the investment they have to do, except if they need more people. But the government is now stepping in and many of the local governments are starting to help, give incentives. So if you start your company as a, as a fresh graduate, you will get some money to start your own company. I mean, Chinese are always like, okay, let's solve this easy. We're going to create uh, 1 million internships this year in state-owned enterprises. And so all the fresh graduates who haven't gotten experience, they can just start and they'll get paid something. And, and so the basics, but so they'll get experience for two years. So it's, it's again on a scale basis. These are things that work maybe temporarily, but systemically, China really has a problem that they need to give opportunity to fresh graduates. And this is where I think over time, the creative and the gig economy will take care of much of that. But this is not typically what their parents want. So the parents of the Chinese that are typically still very traditional, they say, yeah, you should start with a state-owned enterprise or go and work for Chinese bank. You will get a great future. And so there's a lot of traditional reasons why these uh, graduates do not go into the gig economy or the, the freelance economy directly or the creative industries. And they wait a few times and that's why they're, they're, they're unemployed. But it is a big issue in China. And I think that's specifically with the fact that the demographics is a problem in China, where there's more and more old people. And if the young people don't work, you have an issue. Thanks for clarifying that. I'm going to stay with you, Pascal, for our last topic of this episode. President Biden was in uh, some Asian countries this week, and it became the start of the launch of what they call the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. That's a mouthful, very difficult for me to pronounce that. You told me, Stephen, we need to add this topic because it will change the world. So, Pascal, tell us, how will this yeah. change the world? Well, we have to add it because it won't change the world, but, uh, but it's, it, it's supposed <laughs> to change the world. <laughs> so, meaning that Biden wants to change the world, but uh, the Chinese are already saying this is never going to happen. But the reality is that uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF, It's, again, one of these acronyms that is being used to have an agreement between many countries in the world. I wanted to mention it because it's an important agreement or an important step to understand that the world is changing. And so what Biden has done this week is he went to Japan, South Korea. He did an Asia tour when he was on his uh, election campaign. He promised basically that he would focus on Asia as his international policy because he sees China as the biggest competitor. And the U.S. influence in the Asian region is for critical importance for the U.S. And so they feel that China and the U.S. Are, are the two big powers that are trying to get as much as possible countries to work with them in the Asian region. And so Asia will also be the biggest growth market in the next 30 years. With India and China, it's almost 50% of the GDP of the world that is coming from Asia very soon. So it's the pivot to Asia is what Biden is always talking about. But because of the war in Ukraine, he was delayed with a lot of these plans to actually focus on Asia. And so he's trying to do that again. And so the IPEF is a new framework 
but it's not a trade agreement. And this is interesting because everybody expects that, yeah, America is a huge market. And so if you give like less tariffs for importing into the US, then you can have a, a multilateral deals with other countries. And so this could be a big trade agreement. But there's already many trade agreements. Obama tried to do one a long time ago with the TPP. I don't know if you heard about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Every Asian, Southeast Asian country working together uh, economically, except China. They were not allowed to get into that TPP. That was the Obama and Clinton uh, direction. And this was really about basically excluding China. But then Trump, the first thing he did when he took office was say, I'm not going to be part of that TPP. I'm out. The America, we, we don't want to be joining that because he likes bilateral deals instead of multilateral deals. And so China saw its opportunity to then create the CPTTP or it created the CTPPP. Basically, it's a comprehensive Trans-Pacific Partnership, which China is now part of. And so it's the same countries, but with China and without the US. And so Biden wanted to get back in there. Maybe he will, but it's difficult because all these agreements have already been set on trade. And then there's the RCEP, to give you another acronym, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. I mean, we all love acronyms, but the reality is that this is all about creating business in a more easy way between countries in the Asian region. And so there's a lot of these partnerships. But Biden wants to do something, but he can't so easily. And he probably won't get Congress to approve another trade agreement. We don't know what's going to happen with the midterms in November. So maybe he won't have the support of the Congress. So he's been creating this IPEF to conclude a little bit. Uh, this is like as many countries as he can get. So it was in Japan, in Tokyo, it was launched by the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, Kishida, and then uh, the Prime Minister of India, Modi. They were present. And then there was like 12 other or 10 other countries. The usual suspect, Australia, uh, Singapore, New Zealand. But then there was many Asia-Pacific countries also joining, like Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, and so on. So, so it's, it's like 13 countries right now, and there might be more adding. And this is like four pillars he's talking about. And so it's a connected economy. Digital democracy is what they call it, because they don't want non-democratic countries. So it's very clearly the IPEF is against China. This is to not have China being part of this uh, new world. And so that's why it's important. Biden is trying to create this democratic uh, partnership between countries where certain countries like Russia, of course, and China would be excluded. It's also talked about the second pillar is a resilient economy that's about supply chains. And, and because this is a big issue, I mean, everybody's stuck right now. And, and so how can we improve supply chains? There's a clean economy pillar, which is all about infrastructure and carbon or decarbonization. And then there's a fair economy pillar, which is about anti-corruption tax and so on. And so the interesting thing is there's like four pillars and any country in Asia can choose which pillar of the framework they want to work on. But then they have to stick to the agreements of that pillar. And so what he's trying to do that right now, and that's why China says this will never work, is he's trying to say, well, we want as many countries as possible to work with the US, but because we know if we make it too complex, nobody's going to join. So you can just pick whatever cherry you want and whatever preference you want, and we'll work with you on that. But then at least we have this, this communication. I think the most important change might be on the digital part, because this is a lot to do with standards and norms. And so you could see actually the US together with Asian countries creating standards, which are global standards, which China would not be included in. And that could change a lot. Think about 6G coming up. So by the way, China announced 6G will be available in 2030. 
And so Huawei is ready for it. And the government has already uh, made commitment that they will have full 6G available for the metaverse in 2030. So let's prepare for that. So that's all fine. But this standard, if there's any difference with the global standard, there's going to be a whole different world. Although it sounds like probably not going to happen or it will take like forever. And then if Trump is back in office, he might not join it again. And so nobody knows what's going to happen. The reality is that it's creating a new mindset of you either with us or you're without us. And the interesting thing about this framework, one last thing is that um, it's called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. And so whenever you hear the word Indo-Pacific, as opposed to Asia-Pacific, it means China's not included. And so Indo-Pacific is the new word that has been used for a couple of years. Trump started it to basically say, this is the Indian Ocean with the Pacific Ocean. So India's included, but they focus on India to exclude China. And so this word is simply explaining like, this is the new world uh, in Asia, excluding China. Even on NATO, totally different subject, you now see that NATO, which is very much related to defending transatlantic uh, area, Europe and the US, is now having two new members in the cyber NATO, which is Japan and South Korea. And so it's going global, this thing. And this is why I think it's important to see this, because on many aspects, even on quantum now, America, France, Germany, Japan, South Korea, they're all working together. And so you're seeing that there's a double world happening on technology cooperation, collaboration, on standards collaboration, on security collaboration. And so this means that there's actually a double world starting to be created. And this is this IPEF is another example of how this is happening. Personally, from a, an, a global uh, technology development point of view, this is actually not good because we're starting to split the world into. Pascal, how difficult is it for countries like take Thailand or Vietnam or India to go along with this proposition of the US and then basically choosing sides? How difficult is that for those Asian countries? Well, extremely difficult for some of them. And that's why Biden has created this four pillars and say you can join whatever you want, because if you would say it's either us or the others, most countries in Asia would not leave the Chinese influence because they make too much money from China still. I mean, from selling into right. China, but also producing uh, for factories that have left China. Think about Vietnam. So it's really hard for them to pick and choose. The only two countries that are pretty US-centric, first of all, Japan, but Japan is also making a lot of money in China, but they're like very strongly US-related. That has to do with their history, of course. Uh, also because they weren't allowed a military after the Second World War. And so they're stuck to the American defense mechanism. And, and then also you have Singapore and South Korea. These are also very much uh, to the American direction. Yeah. But every other country in Asia, except Taiwan, which of course is not a country officially, every other country in Asia is kind of... Um, trying to, to go on both directions. Yeah. And, and so it's a power play. Yeah. All right. Well, very interesting. 
Thanks for sharing that. You just struck me with the word quantum. I think uh, if, if our point is that the future is speeding up, I think that was a, just an anecdote from London as well. Like we had that speaker who said, what is your post-quantum security strategy? And if you don't have one, are you planning it yet? And I just thought of it, we have to share that with our audience as well. So just to show like, these are the things we should be busy Post-quantum with. Post-quantum cryptography or something like that. Uh, we missed Peter now to explain that yeah. in the greatest detail because it was over our <laughs> heads <laughs> but that was my indeed, point was uh, it's speeding crazy. up <laughs> it's speeding up it's speeding up well that's a beautiful way to to end this episode pascal julie thanks for for sharing your knowledge and anecdotes i had a great time listening to everything you had to say thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next month for a new episode of radar by nextworks thanks for listening bye bye see you next month Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.